That's 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Sinclair newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you. We, it's been quite a while since we've been in this location for a podcast, Brendan. I forgot what we call it. Yeah, Did we call it the Sinclair newsroom. The, I think so. The the O's Extra House of Fun. The O's Extra House of Fun. <laughs> That's where they film O's Extra, or at least did before yeah. they moved permanently to the ballpark. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of. I think House of Fun is is the good way to go there. Okay. Uh, well, that's the way I went. Uh, we are going to be talking about the trade deadline. This is our trade deadline preview podcast, officially. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the guys that could go, some of the guys that uh, probably, I think, are going to stay in-house. Um, but uh, we've got we've got plenty to talk about, but we got to start, Brendan. Second softball game of the year coming up tonight. Huge day. Huge yeah. day. Uh, you went two for two last time? I did. One was like an infield single. The other, both of them were infield. Both singles. of them were infield. Well, one of them, one of them was a swinging bunt in my first at bat. I was yeah. not used to the loft of the pitches, yeah, which sounds like it's really easy to get used to, but it's it, it took a little bit. So yeah. my first at bat was a swinging bunt that I just beat out, and then the second one was an infield single. Uh, I it's okay. I, I went zero for three. Um, had a was there any hard contact? Is the question? There was a strikeout. There okay. was soft contact, and then there was hard contact that was a fielder's choice. That honestly, I think if because a lot of ball like the infield singles are common because you right. can beat out a lot of balls that are hit to shortstop, like the left side of the infield, and it was hit to the left side of the infield. So I think if they didn't have, if they weren't able to go the short way to second, I think I probably would have beat out that throw. Well, it sounds like things got progressively better. It was strikeout, yes. soft contact, hard contact. So then by the second game, I mean, you're hitting home I'm, runs. I got to be hitting back. dingers. I got to yeah. be hitting dingers. One, the, the other team definitely took it way too seriously. There was a, a woman on the other team that was like staring at the pitches as they were coming in. She took a walk. Life's too short to take walks in, <laughs> in you know, Monday night wreck softball, Brendan. That's my take. Look, I appreciate um, the plate these, discipline. Unless these pitches are like way out. One pitch hit me and I didn't get my base because that, those are the rules. So even I... Didn't, you know, but that was swinging on the next pitch. I'm not looking to take a walk. Look, if we learned anything from our trip to Bowie, it was that if the pitch isn't yours, even if it's in the strike zone, if you can't drive it, you're not swinging at it. Right. So, And I appreciate taking that mentality from professional baseball players and applying it to Monday evening rec softball. All, all due respect to Black Britain. I think the talent on the Bowie Bay Sox team is just a just a tick higher than some of the talent we're seeing in the could uh, be in uh, could be downtown Baltimore. Yeah. All right, um, Brendan. Before we get into the trade deadline stuff, I want to circle back on our conversation that we had last week about uh, signing draft picks because after the Orioles went under slot with Colton Cowser with that uh, number five overall pick in the MLB draft, and then they went under slot slightly again with their second-round pick in Connor Norby. A lot of people were wondering, well, where is that money going to be going? Because the Orioles still want to use all of their draft pool. And we talked about them, you know, taking a lot of college players later on. And some of those guys were college-eligible sophomores to the point where they had to be signed slightly over slot. One guy was Creed Willems, who is a massive catcher that uh, hits absolute bombs 
uh, from the left side of the plate and apparently took swings at Camden Yards and one-hopped the warehouse, according to Glenn Clark. So that'll do. That'll work. Yeah, and he signed for 800000 over his projected slot value. Uh, the slot value for that eighth round pick, I think, was projected somewhere it around one hundred and eighty thousand, and he signed for a million, one hundred and eighty-seven thousand. So he signed for a higher dollar amount than five of the players the Orioles drafted ahead of him. Yeah. So he the the Orioles splashed on him. So that that he was he was like an eighth or a tenth round pick. Yeah, the eighth round pick, and that's the benefit of going under slot with your first few picks, which is what the Orioles did with Colton Cowser and Connor Norby. Is that if you are able to find a high school player that you like in one of those later rounds, you can take a bigger swing on him, and that's what the Orioles did in the eighth round. So they did that, and then they also uh, signed a large number of the players that they drafted. So they, I said last week, I thought they might go, you know, 20 for 20, forgot that they had the the extra competitive balance pick. So there were 21 picks that they made, and so far they've signed 20 of them. There's only one holdout, and I think it's righty Daniel Lloyd, who is a college pitcher from South Carolina, who has pitched all four years. So the and he's a there, 14th rounder. It's yeah. not like you are unable to or, sign yeah. like a third or fourth rounder. It's the 14th round guy right. that they haven't signed yet. And it's exactly what we thought they might do here because with guys that are picked in rounds 11 through 20, you can pay them up to $125,000 without it affecting your bonus pool or your your draft pool rather. But if you start going over that, then the overage comes out of the the draft pool so essentially them going under slot early allowed them to sign more draft picks so they are going for quantity clearly here because from day one michael Elias has talked about adding as much talent to the system as possible like we said on last podcast he understands the draft is a crapshoot you get as many guys as possible uh, out of that draft then you are increasing your odds on hitting on one of those guys. Yeah, and they did go over slot at a few different places as well, most notably in the third, sixth, and seventh rounds, along with that eighth round way over slot. Yeah. So they were able to use that money effectively later on in the draft. And uh, one of our comments on Facebook, Justin Anderson saying, uh, Creed Williams, also a two-way player, also a pitcher. So, yeah, I think uh, the Orioles, and that the Orioles did not specify. I remember Brad Selick after the draft, he said he's a baseball player about Creed Willems, so we'll see. I mean, looking at the body type, looking at the swing, I think he's probably going to stick as a position player, but you never know. Well, if he's hitting one hoppers to the warehouse, my assumption is that you go with the bat first. We're in the Shohei age now, so I think we're going to see a lot of two-way players be tried He's going to pitch and catch simultaneously. He will throw to himself. He's going to have to be pretty fast. Yeah, well, five-tool player. Five, yeah, six, (laughs) some would say. All right, um... Let's get, oh, by the way, one more thing I want to mention. Um, Jordan Lawler, we are a week away from, less than a week away from the deadline for these picks to sign. So, by the way, the Orioles might sign that last guy, Daniel Lloyd. They might go 21 for 21, which I don't know how many how many teams are going to end up with 21 signed draft picks. Yeah. I can't imagine very many. Um, but Jordan Lawler, who was on the board when the Orioles were selecting, taken by the Diamondbacks with that sixth overall pick, still has not signed. I think he's still considering Vanderbilt. It's it's going to take probably a lot of money for Jordan Lawler to be dragged away from Vanderbilt. Again, I would be surprised if he goes to play college baseball, especially because this is a top 10 pick. Yeah. But the Diamondbacks are probably figuring out at this point that 
maybe they have some later round picks that they liked and maybe you're not able to sign those guys over slot or even at their slot value if you sign Jordan Lawler to some huge deal for the number six pick. Yeah, and I I don't know enough about the Diamondbacks draft and who they've signed so far, but my guess is Michael Ice would not be want to be in a position where he still has not had his first round pick signed because right. he and that hampers you because then that's where the mo- the bulk of your money's going to go. So then how much money are you going to have left over to sign these other guys? It probably probably has to work chronologically pretty much. Right. You know, you can probably sign some of those later guys, but all starts with that first round pick. And we mentioned it on draft night, not to go into the big draft yeah. night tangent here, but if you go that far over slot with one of your top picks, it backs you into a corner a little bit because then it really limits your draft board in terms of the guys that you're able to look at in those later rounds. You probably can't look at some of the high school overslot guys like the Orioles were. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's flip the script over to the trade deadline coming up on Friday at 4 p.m. Um, there are a few candidates that the Orioles have in-house, but I think the the we are at a point now where I think six months ago we might have thought that the Orioles would have more trade pieces at their disposal than they currently do and I think that it's a lot of reasons why that has happened but I think the overwhelming story at this trade deadline is the Orioles are probably not going to be doing very much because the guys that they have in-house are either uh, they're one of three categories one they're just not good enough to be traded two they are good and young and the Orioles want to hold on to them and three is the smaller category which they are right in the sweet spot where they are just old enough and just good enough to be trade pieces. Well, and the other spot there, maybe they're just injured, like Freddie Galvis. True. He probably would have been a trade piece at this deadline because he was playing well enough to get traded, but I don't think he is going to get dealt because of the injury concern. You can probably throw John Means into that category as well. I don't think Means would have been traded to begin with, but the injury does not help the Orioles' case if they were looking to trade him. I don't think they were, but... I think Means is in a different category slightly. And, yeah. he, and he has come back. I mean, now, now right. he's healthy. So I think teams at least have seen a couple healthy starts from him. But I, I think Means is in the category, the good and young category, the category of we want to hold on to these guys. Right. And we'll get into them later. And there you can make a case to trade some of these guys. But I think this category is the, Ced, the, the three M's, the Cedric Mullins, the John Means, the Trey Mancini. Uh, those three, I think, fit that category for the most part. Um, but I think the reason that Michael Elias, you mentioned Freddie Galvis, Michael Franco was another guy who was a one-year major league deal signing uh, in the offseason right before the season started. And the hope is with some of these deals, you are going to be able to flip these guys. And the other deals that fall into this category, Matt Harvey was a minor league deal, a million dollars if he makes the roster. He has not been good enough. And you have... Uh, Felix Hernandez, who didn't even make the team out of spring training, same deal, minor league deal that was a million dollars guaranteed if he signed. And I think the Orioles looked at their what they did in 2020 and said, if we take enough of these low risk swings, we might be able to hit on them. And for various reasons, they just have not hit on any of the guys that they thought they might hit on. Yeah. And the low risk is the important thing to point out there. You can sign Michael Franco to a relatively low-risk major league deal, and even if he doesn't pan out as somebody that you can move at the deadline, which he has not panned out so far, and it would be very surprising if he does get traded, you don't really incur that big of a penalty. Right. You just pretty much have to pay him for the rest of the year. He's not really 
playing well enough to even guarantee himself a starting spot every day. So say there was somebody, like if Ryland Bannon was playing better in the minors right now, you could still make a justifiable case that Ryland Bannon could be starting over Michael Franco. So he's not holding down a roster spot to the point where you can't bench him if you want to start a prospect, and you also aren't paying him a ton of money. Right. If you had paid a free agent a lot more money in hopes that they would get traded and they're having a similar struggling Michael Franco season, that's where you incur the big risk, and the Orioles really didn't do that. Right, and and the, the low-risk swings that Michael Elias made last year, I think one was Tommy Malone. He was a minor league deal similar to, I don't think he had a million-dollar guarantee if he made the roster, but it was a similar deal to the Felix Hernandez, the Matt Harvey, and that one hit. Signed Tommy Malone... I think it was like Valentine's Day in February. Yeah. He ends up sticking with the team, obviously makes the opening day start in place of John Means. And he, because of the COVID season, the shortened season, the Orioles actually might have benefited from that in that they saw that other teams saw less of him and decided to trade for him. So they only saw six starts from Tommy Malone in 2020. He had a 3.99 ERA through those six starts. If they if we had the same 60-game season, trade deadline was a month after the season started like it was last year, and we saw only six starts from Matt Harvey, he had a 3.60 in his first six starts. So the the they both fell off the cliff around the same time. The difference was Tommy Malone was already on the Braves when he fell off the cliff. Right. And Mike and uh Matt Harvey was not. He was still on the Orioles. So, you know, there are similar swings to make, but the Orioles actually might have gotten a little bit lucky with some of their swings that they made last year just because of the shortened season. But hey, Matt Harvey, 12 shutout innings since the All-Star break. He's been pretty good. Not good enough to get traded. I seriously doubt that any team is going to look at Matt Harvey at this point. No, do not believe those fake accounts going around Twitter. I don't think there's going to be a contending team that is so desperate for starting pitching that they go after Matt Harvey. I don't really think there's any starting pitcher on the roster at this point that a contending team could look at and trade for outside of John Means. And I think, like you said, Means probably falls into the category of young enough and good enough to stick around. So it's really just the bullpen when you're yeah. looking at potential arms that the Orioles could deal. Yeah, exactly. And the the deals that the Orioles made last year, two of them were bullpen deals. If you remember, it was Richard Blyer. Although, actually, Richard Blyer was earlier. Richard Blyer he was, was early in the season when the Marlins the, had that COVID outbreak. Yeah, and, that, and they just needed players. And that's a, a, another example of the Orioles getting a little bit lucky in 2020 with the trade pieces because the the Marlins were so desperate that right. they... The Orioles didn't get much back. I think they got a recent international signing in the Richard Blyer deal. But at the deadline, they traded uh, Michael Givens to the Colorado Rockies. Um, and they traded Miguel Castro right at the buzzer to the Mets. So two of the three deadline deals, we'll qualify them as, within 24, 48 hours of the deadline, were bullpen deals. That's really the only avenue for the Orioles at this deadline. Yeah, and for this deadline, there isn't really a Michael Givens. There's not a reliever on the roster that has the track record that Michael Givens did and can come in for a team and be a closer. So I don't think we're going to see any kind of return that is similar to the Taron Vavra and Tyler Nevin return that the Orioles got from Michael Givens. However, Miguel Castro was, what, 26 at the time that he was traded and had a lot of potential. Actually, 25. 25. Yeah. I think Tanner Scott falls into that Miguel Castro category where you could get 
a sneaky good prospect there. I think Tanner Scott probably will demand more prospects than somebody like Paul Fry, but I think those are the two big candidates that could get dealt this year. Yeah, so let's start with Paul Fry. I think he's the more likely of the two to get traded. Uh, Lefty, that helps his case. Teams are always looking for lefties. Teams are always looking for bullpen pieces, period, at the deadline. So, you know, it's not like you have to be a lights-out closer for your name to come up in trade talks. Uh, He's 29, so... Uh, happy birthday, by the way. Turns 29 today. Yeah. Happy birthday, Paul Fry. Uh, he does not fit in the Orioles' rebuild as much as some of his counterparts in that bullpen, uh, including Tanner Scott. The age just makes it a little bit more difficult uh, to see him lining up with some of the Orioles' pieces. Um, he's eligible for arbitration starting next season, so that makes him attractive for a team because they still have three years of control of Paul Fry uh, as he goes into the beginning of his 30s. Um, and he's having a good season. I mean, th- you know, he has two blown saves. Just about everybody on this team has a blown save. There's no true closer on this team, unfortunately. But he's got a 3-4-9 ERA, uh, 12 and a half strikeouts per nine, which is the highest mark of his career, and a 1.16 whip, which is the lowest mark of his career. And he's been very reliable for the Orioles, has not given up a home run yet, Clearly one of Brandon Hyde's favorite weapons to use out of that bullpen. And you, uh, like I said, you don't have to be an elite closer for you to bring back some kind of return. Not like he would demand four prospects or something like that, but I think his numbers and track record are good enough to get something back at the deadline. Yeah, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a team that would not have a spot for Paul Fry. Like you said, he's not an elite closer, and he's not going to give a contending team somebody who can come in in the ninth inning in those super high leverage situations. But if you need somebody for the seventh or eighth inning, Paul Fry is a good option for somebody. He has a decent track record in three of his four years in the majors. He's got an ERA in the mid threes or better. And like you said, this year, his whip and his strikeout numbers are improved. Yeah. Paul Fry is somebody that we talked about last year as a potential trade candidate as well. But the numbers have gotten better for Paul Fry, even if the ERA has been pretty consistent. And like we said before, contending teams pretty much always need bullpen help. Yes. Like you are going to be hard pressed to find a team that could not use Paul Fry teams like the Mets, Phillies, Reds, Blue Jays, Mariners, all those teams could use bullpen help. And Paul Fry, while he probably won't command a great prospect, I would be surprised if the Orioles even get a top 25 prospect for Paul Fry. Maybe somebody sneaks into the top 30, but he's still a valuable bullpen piece. Yeah. I think you probably get, if you're looking for a comparable deal, from recent history, I think the Blyer deal is probably the closer one. Even though the strikeout numbers, he's a much better strikeout pitcher than Richard Blyer was. Age is somewhat similar, though, um, and the Orioles only got a recent international signing, uh, like like I mentioned, back for Blyer. So I don't expect the return to be a whole lot if he is dealt. Um, but I think the years of control definitely help because you mentioned a lot of those teams, like the Mariners, uh, the Angels, uh, the Reds, they're probably looking for some controllable pitchers. They're, you know, yeah. they're probably looking for somebody who is not a rental uh, just to to try to get them over the hump this year. I think they're probably thinking not just this year, but next year and the year after uh, to try to make a push. So I think that that makes him more attractive than some of the other uh, rental relievers on the market. Yeah, and James on Facebook asking uh, if the Orioles in these trades would be getting major league players in return or prospects. I would assume prospects because it 
unless it's a really young major league player or somebody who is on the verge of the major leagues, it feels a little redundant to be moving quality veterans for other quality veterans. So I would assume that if the Orioles are trading somebody like Paul Fry, they would probably get a prospect, maybe not a top prospect, maybe not in the top 30 or somebody who was a recent international signing. Yeah, and Michael Elias always says he likes to have those kind of recent international signings thrown in, you know, because teams are more likely to trade them. They're more of a gamble because yeah, they're very roll. young. <laughs> they're like right. 16, 17 years old. And because the Orioles still are looking to upgrade uh, their international system, which, you know, obviously was neglected for several years and needs an influx of talent. So they, they will use anybody that they take. And, and like we've said in the past, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. was somewhat of a throw-in way back when, right. when he came over in the James Shields trade, right? Yeah, you never know with those players that yeah. are even, like Trey Turner was a player to be named later. David right. Ortiz was a player to be named later. Obviously, the Orioles are probably not going to strike gold like that, but you never know. Yeah, you never know. Uh, and a lot of those guys last year, if you recall, because you couldn't name them, if I think if they weren't on your 60-man player pool, you couldn't name them until after the season. Yeah, it was, it was a weird... Yeah. We don't really need to worry about it because it was a weird yes. COVID we protocol. We have minor leagues. Yes. All, all very good this year. Yeah. Um, so I think Paul Fry represents your biggest, uh, your most likely to be traded piece. I would agree. I think at this point, I would be more surprised if Paul Fry didn't get traded than I would if he did. Yes. Uh, then there's Tanner Scott, who to me is more of the Miguel Castro category. So Miguel Castro was 25 when he was traded last year, and the, the book on Castro was this guy has great stuff. He's got this blistering fastball. He just needs to control it a little bit more. Well, that's been Tanner Scott. Tanner Scott has very high strikeout numbers. He's got 10 Ks per nine. Uh, sorry, 13 Ks per nine. Yeah. Uh, he was probably the Orioles' best reliever in 2020. You know, like a 1-3 ERA last year was lights out for them. Comes into this year, and it has still been good, but the walks have been a major issue for Tanner Scott. Yes. We, we, they cropped up over the weekend in the series against the Nationals. Uh, he ultimately got out of the hole that he was digging, but uh, he did put runners on base, and that has been the high-wire act that we've seen Tanner Scott walk this year. Yeah, that's, that's the thing with Miguel Castro from last year as well. You had a lot of command issues, yeah. and if you are trading for Tanner Scott, you are hoping that he can come in in high leverage situations, again, not going to be your closer, but you're still hoping if you're trading for him that Tanner Scott will be effective for you in the 6th, 7th, 8th inning for a contending team. How confident are you in Tanner Scott bringing him in in the 7th or 8th when his walks per 9 is over 6? Yeah. That is really questionable for Tanner Scott. The stuff is there. If you believe in the command enough, then I think he can get a decent prospect. I think we can both agree that looking back right now with how Kevin Smith has been pitching in the minors, the Mets overpaid for Miguel Castro yeah. in terms of the prospect that they gave up. So I don't think we will see a similar deal for Tanner Scott unless another team wants to overpay with a really good prospect. I think maybe he has a better chance of getting a top 20-25 prospect than Paul Fry does because of his age and because he has those really good strikeout numbers. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked if the Orioles can get a 20 to 25 range prospect from somebody. Yeah, that was one of the last deals of the Brody Van Wagenen era, I believe. And Miguel Castro has actually been pretty good for the Mets yes. this year. He's got like a 360 ERA, but yeah, I think it's fair to say that that was the Orioles got 
value and then some right. uh, in that deal. Uh, the question with Tanner Scott, though, he's 27 years old. He fits the timeline a whole lot better than Paul Fry. Those two years are big two years. And he's in the same level of uh, contract status. So he's eligible for arbitration starting next season, under control for three more years. But him being a little bit younger, in theory, there is some untapped potential. I don't know if he's ever, I don't, I don't think that, I think the dream of him being a starter has probably died. That, yeah, not but happening. The, but the dream of him being an effective reliever on a team that is, you know, trying to somewhat contend next year and is trying to definitely make the playoffs, I would think, in theory, in 2023, that's still on the table for Tanner Scott. And he is valuable now, but is he more valuable to keep in-house than he would be to ship off for some lower-level prospects? It's a, it's a good question. And also the question that you have to ask as well, I know the Orioles are not going to win that many games this year, but if you're trading both Paul Fry and Tanner Scott... Brandon Hyde is left in a precarious position in that bullpen. He's in the get, short term. Once you get to the seventh, eighth inning, who's there at that point? It, Tyler Wells, if you keep Cesar Valdez, Cole Sulcer. I think I think they, things will shake out. I right. think, and Michael Elias can't really worry about the that. The short term is not a concern. No, and, and also keep in mind, I mean, I think that we're a little bit, you know, Bruce Zimmerman is still on the mend, so he's probably going to come back and be back in your rotation. Alexander Wells is making another start, so he's been taking up a spot in that rotation. We still think Jorge Lopez probably will move to the bullpen because he just can't get over that fourth and fifth inning hump. Uh, 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 Keegan Aiken is probably going to be moved to the bullpen, so I think that they will be okay in that category. They're Hunter not gonna, Harvey's still on the mend as well. Yeah, they're not going to have the the, you know, the same reliable if they trade both Paul Fry and Tanner Scott they're not going to have Brandon Hyde's not going to have more reliable options there uh, but he will have there will be enough players to throw out there and I think that 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 should be less of a concern the short term is always less of a concern than it is for the long term but I see what you're saying yeah and Michael Elias is not going to be concerned with well in the 2021 season maybe there won't be a seventh eighth inning option for the Orioles if he can get good prospects for Paul Fry or Tanner Scott he's gonna make yes yeah um so I think that those two represent you know in that order Paul Fry Tanner Scott the most likely uh to be dealt there are some other names being thrown around. I think the third most likely could be Cole Solcer. Saw that in the chat as well. Uh, similar to Paul Fry in terms of age, he's actually a little bit older. He's 31 and is also having a good season. ERA under three, just a tick under three. Whip is a little inflated, 1.26, striking out 12 per nine. So is he in that category as well? Is he Has he boosted his stock enough to the point where he's tradable? He only has still about 60 games played 60 appearances in his career and he's 31 years old so the track record is not there but sometimes you see teams go for the hot hand at the deadline they say let's try to ride this wave for the second half of the season and see if he can get us you know eat some innings get us into the playoffs the thing with Cole Sulcer that is different from Paul Fry and Tanner Scott in my eyes in terms of how likely he is to get traded is that Cole Sulcer is not coming in for you in high leverage situations he hasn't been coming in for the Orioles in many high-leverage situations. You look at his game logs and going back and, and looking at what games he's pitched in, if he's in the seventh inning, it's probably a four- or five-run game. If he's in the eighth inning, it's probably the same thing, four or five runs. Yes, his numbers are pretty good, 
but he's really not coming in in those late-game, close situations. And I think most teams around the league probably have guys that they are comfortable throwing in the seventh inning if they've got a four- or five-run lead. Right. He's His numbers have been decent, and he hasn't been having a bad season, but are you going to be able to get anything for a guy that probably will not come in in a high-leverage situation for a contending team? Yeah. The, the, the other question, though, I think is, is fair, is how much would you trust... Tanner Scott and Paul Fry in those situations. Right. They have both. I think more than Cole Solcer, more than likely. Tanner Scott's blown two saves. Paul Fry's blown two saves. But, yeah, I think that you can trust them more in the eighth and seventh innings. Yes. Uh, as opposed to the ninth. I, you know, none of these three guys are a bona fide closer. Uh, but I think that you can definitely trust those two. And uh, based on what we've seen Brandon Hyde do, at least. Um, but he, he, I think that also the more that he sees of Cole Solcer, the more that he trusts him. I think we're starting to see the core four for Brandon Hyde out of that bullpen is Paul Fry, Tanner Scott, Dylan Tate, and Cole Sulser. It's those four guys that he really has leaned on, and we saw it in the in the Nats game. I think it was Friday in relief of Jorge Lopez. He needed four and a third or four and two thirds, and he went with those four guys. And he's mixed up the order occasionally, but it is those four guys. So he is valuable, but I would agree. And, and I think at 31 years old, there is a little bit of concern of why hasn't this guy been better for longer he should have had more of a track record at 31 um it was the same thing with like when the Orioles got him and it was like he had seven scoreless appearances for the Rays in 28 uh, 2019 how did the Orioles get him for so cheap and then he pitches in 2020 and he's really struggles so right. it, you know it, it we'll see but I think that he is he's possible to be traded I think Dylan Tate also is a possibility as well but I think he falls under the category of kind of a worse Tanner Scott where he's got the age and he has the potential, but he is not as good as Tanner Scott. He does not have the track record that Tanner Scott does. And I think if you're the Orioles, it's probably more valuable at this point to hold on to Dylan Tate yeah. and see if he can develop into something more and see if he can develop into a Tanner Scott type where you trust him more in that seventh, eighth inning rather than dealing him at this point where he's probably not commanding a lot. And he, while he does not have the track record that Tanner Scott does, he does have higher pedigree. Former right. first-round pick, very high first-round pick, I think number four overall uh, several years ago. So I think maybe teams could, you know, they, they wouldn't have the track record, but maybe they're banking on him cashing in a little bit of that high potential. Yeah, and the last bullpen arm, I think there's a very small percent chance, but Cesar Valdez has looked good since he's returned. I, he's pitched six scoreless innings. He's got four strikeouts. I know his ERA is under six on the season. My only thinking with Cesar Valdez is that if you are a contending team that needs somebody to come in and just eat innings, we've seen Cesar Valdez has the potential to be a starter. We know he can come in in a bullpen situation and give you three innings I don't think there's a high percent chance he gets dealt because he has a really bad ERA so far this season had a rough stretch leading up to his injury I think there's a at least a small percent chance that somebody just needs a bullpen inning eater and that's what Cesar Valdez can provide I mean in theory he could be an opener but Brandon Hyde has not started him once yes since he's come over He's very old. He's got a 570 ERA. I know he was great in 2020. And I think a there's a story. very small percent chance. I think there's a zero percent. <laughs> I, I I'm not. I won't sugarcoat it. I, I like Cesar Valdez as much as the next guy, probably more than the next guy. But uh, I don't think there's any chance anybody trades for him at this point. I think teams have figured out the dead fish. I give it a solid two percent chance. 
Yeah, it's going to be less than that. I think if there's anybody that's like a wild card, I think there's a chance maybe Adam Plutko is being thrown around. Same category. Somebody that can come in and eat innings for you if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, Plutko, and Plutko can actually start. He has started in right. his career. Uh, but he's got an ERA close to five. You know, not a big strikeout guy. Strikes out seven per nine. Pretty high whip, 1.5. Um, he's been valuable for Brandon Hyde because he can bounce around between long relief and starting if necessary, but he just got traded right before the season for cash. So has he done anything in the past few months to boost that trade value to the point where the Orioles could get a player? Probably not. Yeah, I think if you're looking at the bullpen as a whole leading up to the trade deadline, there's Paul Fry and Tanner Scott who have a pretty decent chance of getting dealt. There's Cole Sulcer who has a small chance of getting dealt. And then everybody else, maybe if a team is looking for something very, very specific, they could go for a Cesar Valdez or an Adam Plutko. But in all probability, those guys will not get dealt. Yeah. Um, we are seeing comments about the three M's, about Mullins, Mancini, and Means. Um, to me, the comments right before the draft of Mike Elias talking about Cedric Mullins and said he is becoming a fa- face of the franchise type player. Cedric Mullins is here. I mean, don't, I, I'm you know, I try not to read too much into what GMs say because they're always trying to throw smoke screens out there. However, I tend to believe Mike Elias here. I think that the age of Cedric Mullins, 26 years old, the fact that he has shown legitimately four of the five tools, the only tool he doesn't have is the arm at this point, but he still has speed. He's showing increased power. He's been one of the best outfielders in the American League this year. And it looks like he could be, this could be the start of something. Maybe he's not going to hit 300 every year, but he seems like a valuable enough player and a young enough player to keep around. Look, over the last few years, the Orioles have been in a mode of if a player is good and good enough to get traded, he is probably getting traded. But the Orioles are at the point of the rebuild right now where if there is a young player who is succeeding at the major league level you can make a solid argument that he should be here to stay because he lines up with the timeline of the rebuild we're not even talking about ryan mountcastle ryan mountcastle every team in the majors could use ryan mountcastle he's not going anywhere because he is a young player and he has been proven at the major league level to be a piece that the orioles are going to keep going forward in their rebuild, I think Cedric Mullins is young enough where he fits that category. And look, my my thinking with Cedric Mullins is pretty simple. You would need one of the best prospects in all of baseball, yes. in my opinion, yeah. to trade Cedric Mullins. Every single team in the majors would start Cedric Mullins somewhere yes. in their outfield at this point. Probably and in center. <laughs> probably in center. And if you are trading for a prospect that you're getting in return, you are hoping that by the time that prospect is 26 years old, he gives you as good of a season as Cedric Mullins is giving you right now. And odds are he won't. And odds are he will not. Yeah. Because Cedric Mullins was an all-star, an all-star starter. Yeah. And if you get a prospect that turns into an all-star starter, congratulations, because that hardly ever happens. Yes, you hit the lottery. Exactly. And they they hit the lottery with this kid. And it's the same rationale at this point I don't think Cedric Mullins is quite the player that Byron Buxton is but the twins are in a similar situation they are in the basement in their division Byron Buxton is a young 
very good center fielder and they don't want to move him. Yeah. Because Byron Buxton can be the centerpiece of a very good team for a very long time. And Cedric Mullins provides you that same opportunity. And he's still under contract for at least three more years. I don't, I think he's still even pre-arbitration eligible because of the yeah. amount of time that he spent in the minors. I think he becomes arbitration eligible. Yeah. In 2023. So he's still under contract for four more years. Uh, that is incredibly valuable and too valuable to give up, uh, in my mind. Yes. The other two M's, Trey Mancini, John Means. Trey Mancini is the oldest of the three M's. He's 29 years old. Uh, to me, he is worth more to you, to your franchise, to the guys in the locker room, than he would be to any other team because of what he has been through. And it, I, I, you know... It, being a GM is a difficult job, especially because a lot of the times you have to remove emotion from decisions and make these difficult decisions that, you know, often aren't popular. Uh, and, you know, we know Michael Elias is not afraid to make deals that are not popular. But to me, this goes beyond not popular. To me, this goes beyond this. This is we want to keep this guy here. Um, and he is he has one year left of arbitration eligibility and then he hits the free agent market in 2020 after the 2022 season we'll talk about that while we have all off season to talk about whether you extend him what you do with him long term however he is worth so much more than a mid-season trade in my mind and i agree with you there but i think we also have to keep in mind that as much as we value trey mancini as the team values trey mancini the community everything I think a team looking to trade for him is probably also taking those things into consideration as they are making a playoff push. You mean the veteran leadership? And the veteran kind of leadership, all yeah. of Yeah, yeah, but you, I guess so, but like that, that matters, but the fact It's not that, as valuable to them as it is to yes. the Orioles, and I would absolutely agree there, but there is also something to be said about trading for somebody like Trey Mancini, who immediately comes in and is not only a great baseball player, but is a massive addition to your clubhouse, to your team, to your community. I agree. I agree. But I think that that's a secondary factor when you're looking at deadline deals. I think deadline I deals, you're yes. looking way more at production. And if he is a veteran leader in the clubhouse, that helps. Right. I, to me, I just think that that is so much a part of his Baltimore story at this point and his his story in this franchise. Again, I, I, I try not to look at this, this things from like an emotional standpoint or, but this is a guy that is worth more, I think in house. I, I just wouldn't. And, and also consider like the production. He's been great since the all-star break, since the home run derby, he's uh, is approaching 20 home runs. He's hitting in the two sixties, but plays only first base or DH can't play any other position. Pretty much at this point, you're not going to throw him in the outfield. So, Defensively, he doesn't offer a whole lot. How how you know much is a player like that viewed highly around the league in terms of value that he's bringing on the field? I mean, there are a few contending teams that are making playoff pushes that could use a first baseman right now. Two of them come in the division with the Yankees and Red Sox, and then the Brewers as well have not gotten consistent production out of their first base spot. So as much as... We probably just don't want to trade Trey Mancini. We don't want to see him go at the deadline. I think of the three M's of Cedric Mullins, John Means, and Trey Mancini, he has 
in my opinion, by far the highest chance of getting dealt. Like you said, he's been fantastic since the All-Star break, hitting 318 with four home runs. He's gotten OPS close to 960. He's slugging close to 600. I don't see a contending team not being, especially in the American League, not being able to find a spot for Trey Mancini in the lineup most days, whether it's first base, whether it's DH. I think there's a decent chance that he gets dealt because he just provides a ton of value even on the field at this point. We've talked about so much of his value off the field, but on the field, he's still one of the better first basemen in baseball. And yeah, he's he's older. He doesn't exactly line up with the Orioles' rebuild timeline. I think there's a chance. I think there's... I, I'm, I'm not ruling it out completely. I do think there's a chance. However, I would be surprised. Not, I, I, I would, would also I be surprised. Be forward, but I, I, I would be surprised. I would give it... If I had to throw a percentage chance on it right now, I would give it like a 25, 30% chance that he gets dealt because even though we shouldn't put emotion into it and we shouldn't think about those things, I think even Mike Elias probably has to recognize that what Trey Mancini means to the city of Baltimore, to the team as a whole, gives him so much more value. So you would probably have to be floored by a deal for Trey Mancini to move him somewhere. Yeah. And I think there's a possibility there because like I said, there are a few contending teams that have not gotten good production out of first base and Trey Mancini would be a very clear and immediate upgrade there. But I think the deal would have to be a really, really good one. Yes, I agree. I just think he he provides also value for 20... Just imagining oh, yeah. him being the veteran leader of a clubhouse next year yes. that is trying to win some games and you have your top prospects coming up. I completely I agree he, with yeah. you in the take that he gives the Orioles more value than he gives probably most other yeah. teams in baseball. But again, he would also provide a team who is making a push yeah. a lot of value in the lineup. Yeah. All right. Uh, John Means, last one. Uh, I, I don't think this deal gets done. I don't think he ends up being somebody who is traded just because he has shown incredible highs this year. And he has not been the John Means that we have come to expect since he came back from the injury. And injuries are certainly a problem with John Means. I think I think at this point in his career, it's fair to say, you know, they've hampered him a little bit. Struggled with some injuries in uh, 2020. And it's, it's the same type thing. It's arm fatigue. Uh, and that could be an issue for a starting pitcher that you are expecting to be a workhorse uh, in your rotation. However, uh, I think that 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 injury history also makes him a little bit less likely to be traded because I think teams are less likely to, um, you know, give up something. So again, I think it would have to be, for for all three of these guys and for John Means in particular, it would have to be a godfather offer uh, for for the Orioles to pull the trigger on a deal like that, and I just don't see a team really doing that. Yeah, because you talk about Trey Mancini as kind of the veteran guy over the next few years if he sticks around in that Orioles lineup. John Means could very well be that veteran starting pitcher that sticks around for the Orioles over the next few years. He's good enough and young enough to stick in the rotation for however many years going forward, say the next three or four when he's in the rotation with hopefully Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, some other guys in the Orioles minor league system. I think he's very valuable to keep as that veteran starting pitching presence. And like you said, I don't think the Orioles will get a good enough prospect in return for John Means to have something be worth dealing. Him. Yes. Um, it, it's just it, the just the mere thought of that he could be scratching the surface of of how good he is is worth 
waiting it out to see because it's it's the same argument you made with Cedric Mullins. You're hoping that a prospect you get in return will one day throw a no hitter. It's the mystery box. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe not. Probably not. It in its simplest form, it's do you want Cedric Mullins or do you want a prospect that you hope one day might be as good as Cedric Mullins? Right. And, uh, the and choice is pretty easy for there, Michael it seems Elias. Like. Yeah, a lot of the deals have made sense because they've been guys on expiring deals. They've been older guys who are o- over thirty, like the the Jose Iglesias trade, the Alex Cobb trade, the Jonathan VR trade. All of those deals made sense because of their age and because of their contract status. And the Orioles yes. just do not have enough guys that fit into both of those categories. And we've seen Michael Elias be very hesitant to trade guys who are under team control for several more years. And that that's one more thing about the Miguel Castro deal. His age was, you know, uh, fitting with the rebuild. He was 25 years old. However, he's much closer to free agency. I think he only has one more year under contract. That makes Michael Elias much more willing to trade, the, you know, him. Yes. Um, and while Trey Mancini is approaching free agency, nobody else on this list really is. So I think that that is something that makes uh, them more likely to stay with the Orioles. Yeah, Matt on Facebook makes a good point. Uh, comparing Trey to a Marcakis or J.J. Hardy type, a veteran player that can stick around on a team that might compete in a few years, I think that's a very good comparison there. Last guy I want to touch on real quick, I don't think he gets dealt, but Anthony Santander, leading up yeah. to the season, we talked about him as not a certainty to be off the team, but you and I kind of both assumed looking at the Orioles' prospects in the outfield that Anthony Santander might be on the way out once this trade deadline approached. Given the injury and given the fact that he has not really played all that well when he's been on the field, would be very surprising if Anthony Santander gets traded unless there is a team that is absolutely desperate for outfield help and just looks at Anthony Santander's 2020 and says, we'll go off of that. Yeah, it... it the injury issues that have plagued his career have come back and he's only played 62 games. I think that is by far the biggest issue. I mean, it, he still has yet to play more than 93 games in a season. And I know he's still fairly young. He's still 26, 27, but a team is going to look at that and say, how can we trust this guy to stay healthy? And the thing that Michael Elias is probably thinking, if I have to guess, is that if you can get a healthy first half somewhere down the line from Anthony Santander, whether it's next year, the year, year after, Say next year, Anthony Santander stays healthy for the first half of the season, and he is a good quality outfielder for that first half. You can probably get way more value for him then than you can get for him right now. I don't think Mike Elias is going to sell low on Anthony Santander. He's only hitting 231 right now. Still does not walk a whole lot. 280 uh, on base percentage. Yeah, I mean, 667 for an OPS is not going to. You'd have to sell low. you know, doors off. And the other thing, it, it, you could still get a good final two months of the season, trade him in the off season. Exactly. That, that's still a possibility as well. And the other thing is we thought that Yusniel Diaz would be banging down the door at this point. He has not been. We thought that maybe, you know, there might be some prospects coming up through the system. You know, maybe not Heston Kerstad because he's farther away, further away. But, you know, we thought that there might be a little bit more competition in AAA and AA for those outfield spots. Uh, and it just has not come to fruition. So there's, it's not like you need to deal him to, to make room for a prospect. Right, but maybe you do next year because Ryan McKenna has been playing very well. There's yeah. guys lighting it up in double... I mean, Kyle Stowers has been fantastic the in double tr- A. The trio of Kyle Stowers, Zach Watson, and, uh, well, Robert Newstrom's up in triple A now. Yeah. Um, who am I forgetting? Kyle Stowers, Zach Watson. In the outfield you're yes. talking about? 
Adam Hall? No. It's good podcasting. They have gotten great production from Johnny Reiser. There it is. Yeah. yeah. Ha- has been terrific in yes. AA and AAA. So good that I remember all their names. Um, so maybe next year is the year that you look yes. to move Anthony Santander yeah, because at that point, season. those guys who are now in AA Bowie will probably be at AAA Norfolk by then. Maybe they get calls up to the majors and maybe that's when you look to move Anthony Santander but I don't think it's this deadline. Yeah, the way that Kyle Stowers is playing, he may end up in Norfolk before the end of this season. Yeah. And the way Robert Newstrom is playing, he may end up in Baltimore. I don't think he's going to end up in Baltimore, but he's been great. Fun to think about. You 20, never know. 2018 fifth-round pick, I think, um, for Robert Newstrom. Yeah. Guy hits the ball a million miles. He does. Um, all right. So that's our trade deadline preview. Um, of course, deals can get done from any time until now until that deadline. Friday at 4 p.m., so stick with us on MassonSports.com and all of our social feeds uh, as we get you ready for the trade deadline and take you through the, the team that has been one of the hottest in baseball since the trade deadline, your Baltimore Six Orioles. Six and three Baltimore Orioles since it, the deadline, just swept the Nationals. Might have swept the Nationals into being sellers at the trade deadline. Did. I think we can say did. Yeah. Uh, got the Marlins coming to town, so... Another sub-500 team that the Orioles could uh, pick up some wins. Stack Austin wins, if you will. Yeah, some says. winnable games. You've got two games against the Marlins, three and games three against, against the, the Tigers. Tigers. Yeah, although the Tigers have been hot, but these are sub-500 teams, Brendan. Orioles, Orioles might go, be buyers at the deadline. They're you never know. They're going to go a little run. Never know. Uh, so stick with us on all our, our social platforms. Of course, you can hear the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Watch it on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, anywhere you get your podcasts. Essentially, you can get the Masson All Access Podcast. He's Brendan Mortensen, at Brendan Morty on Twitter. That's I am me. at Paul Mancano. Thanks, of course, to Amy Jennings behind the scenes, running things very smoothly, might I say. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. We will be back to wrap up. The trade deadline might have some trades to dissect and uh, talk about in a week's time. So we'll see you then.